I ask you to please join me in a word of prayer. Well, Lord, I thank you that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, I ask that you would help me as I preach this morning. And I pray that your spirit would come and move among our hearts, our minds. Help us understand what it means to have our identity in you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I have to admit, I've lived in Florida 15 years, and I've never been to the Florida Keys. I'm hoping to remedy that at some point this summer. But at the 745 service, I said, raise your hand if you've been to the Keys. And literally, everyone raised their hands. And I said, okay, raise your hands if you've not been, and five of us had not. So let me do it the easy way in here. Out of curiosity, who with me has not been to the Keys yet? Wow, there's more of you in here than I thought. Okay, well... I'm sorry for both of us uh, that we've not experienced it. I'm, I'm thinking about that because I saw a beautiful picture of the bridge that runs all the way out to Key West, and it was an aerial view, and it just showed all those beautiful colors of the water and the shoals and the sand, and it just looked amazing. I want to ride down that all the way out to Key West and back. I'm hoping to get to do that. And um, I was, as I was thinking about that, I saw a Southern Living magazine, and there was that picture. That's where I saw that picture, and it drew me into an article And I started reading the article, and the person in there was talking about Key West, which, as we all know, is famous for its debaucherous nature and parties and whatever. And then I started to pick up this theme running through culture about expressive individualism, which is everywhere, by the way. And the author said, Key West is a place you come to be yourself, or maybe where you can come to figure out who you are. And then it was one of those double magazines where you flip the back over, there's another cover, and you can read it both directions. And um, on the backside, Hoda Kotb, the the Today Show host, who has some ties to New Orleans, was writing about New Orleans. And again, I picked up the theme. She was writing about having her daughters there at some kind of parade. I don't know if it was Mardi Gras or what. But, you know, the kids shout, hey, mister, throw me something. And one gets a, a pair of beads. The other, though, gets a pair of panties that are big enough that she could drape them like a cape over her shoulders. And it's kind of weird, and I hope it was just bought new and is sanitary, but she says, she says this about it, about New Orleans. You know, obviously there's a connection there between sexuality and freedom. She says, everything is light in New Orleans. Normal is being free, dressing the way you want and dancing in the street, even if you're the only one. New Orleans celebrates the individual, the individual. Right now, culture is all about your identity, what you identify as, how to find yourself, how to be yourself. It's about expressive individualism. I'm reading a book by a guy named Carl Truman called Strange New World, and it fits with what we're doing as we think about ourselves as living as sojourners in a strange land. And he's trying to trace back the philosophical ideas, whether society knows them or not, that are undergirding this movement we're in right now where inner truth is absolute for the person. And it's about expressing that. And he makes all kinds of comments in this book that are helpful. And he says, the modern self assumes the authority of the inner feelings. Where do you go for authority? Inward, to what I feel. That's where I find authority in society right now. It assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. So where's your authority? What you feel. It's not enough to feel it. You have to express it some way socially. 
And not only that, it says society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior. He calls it expressive individualism. And he's chasing back to Rousseau and Descartes and, and these Enlightenment thinkers, and more recently, Sigmund Freud, and talking about Freud and um, his idea of civili civilization and discontents, Freud's idea was of freedom was fully doing whatever you feel like doing, especially sexually. And unfortunately, though, for society to work, you have to be discontent to some level because you have to repress some of that or society will fall apart. He's correct about that. Society does fall apart when people express that stuff, and that's what we're living in right now. And he says in this book, Carl Truman says, sexual desire has emerged in the last 100 years as a primary category for understanding our identity. Now, I want to talk about identity today and not so much about sexuality, but right now in society, there's no longer an inner war being waged. The person has, they're waving the white flag of surrender and are surrendering to whatever feelings and desires they have, and society is celebrating this, and everyone says this is a good thing. Now, into that, Peter has a word. In 1 Peter here, he makes the statement in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You are in a war internally as well as externally. If you are a Christian, you're at odds with this world. If you're a human, internally you have desires that are contrary to society and what is good for the ordering of people. And right now the world says, forget the battle, just give in to those desires. And Peter says, if you know God, you don't do that. There's a war against your soul, and God's on the side of your soul, and your desires are at odds with it. So abstain, he says. Now this morning, what I'd like to do from this text is I'd like to consider a different source of truth, a different source of authority than just looking inward at your feelings. I want to consider this image of the church, he called it a metaphor, which is correct. There's all these metaphors in this passage, but this image of Christ who is building a spiritual temple, and he calls his people living stones. That's about identity. It's about whose you are, or to whom you belong, and who you are. And then out of that comes what you should do, and what you will do. So this is about identity. And Peter's giving us a better anchor for identity, that comes from outside of us, rather than just looking in at our feelings. So I'd like to explore this um, today, and I'm going to look at a couple of things that it says about who a person in Christ is, but before I can go there, I have to pause for a minute because I never presume from this pulpit that I'm speaking only to believers. I tend to avoid the, sta the statement, we as Christians. That's kind of like, it causes my, the hair on the back of my neck to stand up, because that says if you're not a Christian, what I'm about to say has nothing for you. And I have something to say to you and for you if you're not a Christian. My least favorite one is we as Anglicans, which narrows it down even more who we're talking to. I want to back up a second and say we as humans have a problem and there is a solution to it. But before you can get into what Peter's saying in chapter two, I encourage you to back up to chapter one where he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ According to his great mercy, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Born again, your spirit made alive, 
And it's, it's a living hope, and it's founded on the resurrection of Jesus, who is alive. Jesus is present here. He's present everywhere. He is ruling the universe. His spirit is in this world doing all sorts of interesting things. And for those who want it, there is new birth and new life available. And it gives you a living hope. And it goes on in that passage and it says, it's, it's an inheritance that is imperishable. And it's undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are in process. Salvation is a process. We are growing up into salvation. And if you've never trusted Christ, you're standing on the outside looking in, you have to actually accept his invitation to become one of those living stones. You have to surrender and say, okay, Lord, I want to be a Christian. I want to be part of this new thing you're building. Take my heart. Be my Lord. I surrender. And we surrender to the right thing. If you've never done that, I want you to do it. Like even right now, before I'm done preaching, pray for Jesus to become your Lord. Repent of being your own Lord and, and come into this new spiritual thing he's building. And it's also a physical thing he's building. But I felt like I had to say that to get to this next part because, he is, because Peter is speaking to Christians who are, are sojourners, exiles. We don't fit in this world and there's a tension and a conflict. And as that quote from Carl Truman says, it's not enough to have express, expressed my own individual feelings. I expect society to affirm me for it, and you're, we're all part of society. And so if you don't affirm it, you're now labeled something, and it makes for a conflict. And one of the things that's so great about being the church is we are mutually encouraged when we gather together. To be in a room with people who also believe the truth about Jesus and worship him builds you up. It gives you strength. There's all sorts of metaphors that are great ones. I love the one of a bunch of hot coals around a fire. If you take one out and go sit it by itself, it cools down and gets black and dark very fast. You bring it near the fire, it gets glowing red hot again. That's why we come every week. We come to remember who we are and to be encouraged mutually and to express the gifts God has given and to be the spiritual house that he is making. So Christ is building a temple, but it's not made with human hands, but it is made of humans. So Peter, keep in mind, you got to back up. In Peter's day, there was still a temple on the mount in Jerusalem. Now it's a mosque, and it's got the Dome of the Rock, and Islam runs the Temple Mount right now. But that happened in AD 70. The Romans destroyed the temple and threw all the stones off the mount. You can still see them. They're laying there still 2,000 years later. But in Peter's day, there was a beautiful temple there. It was the second temple that was built. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will build a new one in three days. And he was referring to the death and resurrection he was about to go through, and he's pointing ahead to what you are right now, which is a spiritual household. The dwelling place of God is no longer limited to a physical building in the world. The tabernacle in Moses' day, and then from King Solomon on the temple in Jerusalem, was where God manifested his presence with a cloud, with a pillar of fire. The people could see it. It was God's glory on the earth. And now what he's saying is, I no longer am bound in that. I'm doing a new thing that transcends. I'm building a spiritual temple with living stones, and the church are those stones. You can be those stones. So let's talk a little bit about the particular identity that he offers those who come to faith, who trust in Christ. So I want to talk first of all, whose you are. Who do you belong to? To whom do you belong, to put it grammatically correctly? To whom do you belong? 
Well, what's interesting is in verse 9, it says, you are a chosen race. I don't like the word race there. I'd rather family or people. It, it does go on and say a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession. So think race in terms of a new people group. It transcends any kind of ethnic or racial lines. It's a new kind of people. You are this chosen people. Note, it does not say you are a choice people. That's a big difference. It's not because of your goodness or your merit or your inherent worthiness. It's simply because of him who chose you. Out of the world, he chose you. Now picture for a minute a glorious um, temple or a cathedral made with stones, right? The stones were quarried. They are shaped and to uh, uh, the correct size, they're fit together in these masonry rows and then eventually built up into this grand edifice. Now think about that and then think about some stone laying in a field that is uncut. It's not really impressive. And that's the difference here. You can be a stone in a field that's uncut and not impressive, or in the hands of God, you are being built up into something great. He talks about us growing up into salvation. And I note here that in verse 3, Peter doesn't assume everyone who hears this is going to be a Christian. He's writing to the dispersed Christians who are suffering in the world, but he says that, he says, like newborn infants crave pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And then there's a dash, and it says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, which is a reference to the Psalms. Have you tasted the Lord's goodness? Are you aware of what it means that by his mercy he has given us this living hope? Have you experienced something of his real presence in this world? When the church gathers, that happens. But it's important for you to recognize that you are God's chosen possession, that he delights in you. It's for love that Christ came for the world. You are chosen by him. This is God the creator who created the planets, the sun, all the galaxies, who did create those blue waters of the keys and the huge ocean and the majesty of the mountains, all of that is his possession. But he's saying, you are my chosen ones. It's a, you're a special possession to the Lord. He delights in you as a treasure. That makes you more valuable than anything in all of creation. In fact, that's why Jesus came to, sa to save us. He didn't come as a big mountain to save all the mountains. He came as a person, as a human, to save the humans because we were made in his image. We are a chosen people. We're precious to him. This is very important for our own identity to hear what God says about us. Now, in verse 5, this idea of living stones, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He's making something that is a spiritual house. And there's mystery in this. Again, as B.E. noted, we have to use metaphors to understand mystery, but the church is not a physical building. It's not an institution. Literally, the Greek word means, it's ekklesia, and it means called out ones. Ek is from, and klesia comes from kaleo, to call. You are the ones who are called out from the world, and it's probably better translated as gathering or assembly. The church is the assembled people. Now, we're in this post-COVID day where, you know, we have online services and stuff, but it's just not the same to watch it on TV. It's like looking at a picture of the Grand Canyon. Right? You get an image of it, but anytime you've taken one of those pictures, you see something glorious and majestic, and you're caught up in the beauty of it, and you think, oh, I need a picture, and you pull out your phone, and you take a picture, and you get home, and you look at it, and you go, oh, oh, I don't get the same feeling of the majesty of this moment. 
For those who have to watch online, that's, that's true. For those of us present here, you're in the midst of Christ. He, mis- he mysteriously says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be in the midst of them. Of course, he's omnipresent, so where one stands alone, he's also there, but there is something about what happens when God's people are called together and gathered in his presence. There's a glory to it. There's a real presence to it. Preaching is a dialogical thing. Even though I'm speaking like a monologue, I'm reading your faces. I am, there's, there's an exchange happening here. God is present in this moment. He's present at the table. It was in the breaking of bread that their eyes were opened to behold Jesus. There's a real mystery in this. It's interesting. I've got experiences, tons of them, both personally where I've come into this physical building and in the worship service have felt the presence of God and angels. There are also experiences I've had where people that were not Christians have come into this building and been overwhelmed and with weeping and can't bear to stay in here very long. Not that it's a bad feeling. It's just overwhelming, and they, they don't know Christ yet, and the Spirit of God is not in them, and they're not born again, and so they're overwhelmed and usually back away from it. A friend of ours, a neighbor, when we lived in Charleston, who lived a really rough life, but we'd built a friendship, and we went to a worship service midweek at St. Andrew's Church in Mount Pleasant, up in Charleston, and they just had a prayer and praise service. It wasn't even communion on Wednesday nights. So they just have some worship music. There's usually a Bible teaching of some point, and then there were prayer teams like we have at communion. And my neighbor came with us the one time and sat about uh, three-quarters of the way back in the chairs. And before even the prayer ministry started, she was so visibly disturbed, she got up and left. And when I got back home, we had like a duplex. She was on the one half, we were on the other half. And I, I followed up with her. She just, she said, I, I could, it, it just felt too, it was felt too strong to be in there. It was the presence of God. And she was aware of her sin, but she didn't, she didn't know what to do with it, so she fled. The thing to do with it is acknowledge it and give it to God and say, I'm, I repent of these things, and I want you to come into my life and be my Lord. But she experienced the presence of God where God's people were gathered. It's that mystery of real presence. If it could be done virtually, Jesus did, wouldn't have come in the flesh. He would have just sent a video or something. <laughs> right? I mean, there's something about in person that we're dealing with here. And so, we gather and we pray to God together and we, we sing his songs and we have word and sacrament and he's in the midst of it because you belong to him and he inhabits the praises of his people. Now, you are chosen, but not just that. In verse 9, it says you're a royal priesthood. And here, I've got to break down the clergy-laity divide. You know, in Anglicanism, we refer to those of us with this kind of stole as a priest, but it's really a presbyter if you are more literal to the New Testament, Old Testament priests were the ones who did all the work. The people came, and they brought an animal, and the priests who were set aside for this work would sacrifice that animal and burn it on the altar to God and maybe sprinkle some blood or something on the people. But the people were more or less not active, not participating. They were watching it. Now, with this new kind of temple, we no longer have to make sacrifices because Christ was our once-for-all sacrifice, and there's this idea of the priesthood of all believers— So you are the priests of this new era, and not to offer sacrifices of animals, but as our liturgy says, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We are meant to gather up the beauty of the creation and offer it back to God in praise of him and in thanks for him. That's what the priesthood of all believers means. And the church isn't just an organization and an institution, it's an organic movement. 
I tell every one of our newcomers' lunches that Christ has promised to build his church. Our job is to make disciples, but Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. So unless Jesus builds this thing, the labors labor in vain. As you know, I came back from the GAFCON conference in Rwanda a couple weeks ago, and I looked at those archbishops and all those people there with their institutional vestments and their titles and positions, and I thought, this will never work if it's about people, because there's too much pride and too much sin and too much brokenness, and the saying is true, the good news is Jesus is going to build his church, the bad news is that we're the best he's got to work with. But what's interesting is all of these archbishops, especially from the global south, are very poor financially, many with very little education, but they have the gospel. They're full of the spirit. God is doing a movement among them, and 85% of the global Anglican communion is now rallied around them and speaking to the institution of the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Church of England and saying, you need to repent. You see, institutions exist to perpetuate themselves. But a movement is a grassroots thing. It's a bottom, from the bottom up. It's not top down. So I'm saying to you, church, your faith matters. You are the church, not those of us that work for the church. I mean, we're part of it too, but you're the church. You are the priests of all, a priesthood of all believers. That's who you are. And it doesn't come from inside. It's not about a feeling. It's what God declares true about who you are. You are to offer your bodies as spiritual worship. That's Romans 12.1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. And so you have work to do as the priesthood of all believers in offering praise and thanks and living for God's glory. But not only that, not only that, you have something to do. It says, um, in verse, uh, what verse is it? Uh, well, it's, it's still in verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So to a society that wants you to affirm its inner feelings and their odd social expressions of it, God says, no, your job is to be a prophet, I'm adding that word, one who speaks forth the oracles of God, the truth of God, proclaims it to the society and says, let me tell you how excellent God is. He is the true one. Repent and return to him. Experience his goodness. This is where your identity is to be found. Not inside, not in your feelings. Put that stuff to death. Turn it over and come to him and be part of this spiritual household that he's building up. You're a chosen people. You're a priesthood and you're a prophetic voice to a society that's in darkness, and you can call it out to the marvelous light that God has made, made available in Jesus. So I want to conclude by saying, don't fear to go against the flow of a lost and dying culture. Recognize, like Peter told these guys, these men and women, you're going to experience tension because you're sojourners in a strange land. But just because the current of society is going that way, don't drift with it. Don't put up the white flag and give up the battle, the inner passions, that wage war for your soul. Take up arms, in a sense, spiritually. The sword of the Spirit. Put on the armor that God has, the Ephesians 6 stuff, and, and be part of this living temple, this thing that Jesus is building. That's who you are. That's where you belong. And then that's what you should do. Now let's pray that God would give us the grace to do that. Jesus, I thank you that you declare who we are and that you have chosen us even though we're not worthy. 
and many of us are very mindful of our inadequacies and why we're not worthy. But Lord, would you come and build up this church on the foundation of Jesus, the cornerstone? Thank you for such a secure and solid foundation. Lord, have mercy on this society. Help us be bold and faithful in our witness. For any who don't know you, Lord, would you give the gift of new life in Christ? I pray it in his holy name. Amen.